DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Where do you buy your clothes? A local boutique? A mall? On your computer? On your phone? And how often do you go shopping? Do you know where your clothes are made? What environmental consequences do they bring with them? This week, we're digging into our closets and airing our dirty laundry. No judgment here. In the past week, I've both hosted a clothing swap and I've bought new items online. Today on Living Planet, let's get a little smarter about where our clothes come from, where they go, and what impact they have on the environment. From New York to the Himalayas, that's coming up. Thanks for joining us. Do you remember the moment you first became interested in environmental issues? Well, I sure do. I was working at a store, a popular women's fashion brand in the U.S., and I was shocked by the way clothes would come into the store and how they would leave. When we received a new shipment, which seemed to be every week, each item was wrapped in plastic, wrapped again in plastic with other items of the same size, then again with the item's other sizes, then packaged in a box with other products. The sheer amount of packaging was astonishing. I was also surprised to learn that once an item entered the store, it stayed there until it was sold, no matter how low that meant the price had to drop. Someone would eventually buy it for $5. After seeing all this, I was hopeful that online shopping might actually help make this supply chain more efficient. Instead of shipping an item wrapped three times in plastic to a store, which of course uses electricity to stay open, and then a customer having to drive to buy the item and drive it home in an entirely different plastic bag, maybe now that item could go directly from warehouse to consumer and accumulate one less bag and one less stop along the way. Unfortunately, it seems my hopes for an environmental benefit to online shopping were a bit short-sighted. I forgot about one crucial step in the process, trying on clothes and seeing what fits. Today, this has been shifted into consumers' homes after their packages arrive, and whatever doesn't fit or doesn't suit them gets sent back. Over $5 trillion worth of stuff is bought online every year, and a lot of that gets returned. As opposed to taking an item back to a store, when we return online purchases, they don't always go back on the shelf for someone else to buy, even if they're brand new. Brooklyn-based reporter Nikki Thomas decided to examine her own online shopping habits and went to find out where these returns end up and unpack why the industry functions the way it does. This is a pretty standard day for me. I collect the packages I ordered online, open them, try things on or not, put the things I don't want back in the box, and return them via the post. It's perhaps unsurprising I do this so much. A consumer psychology study found that retail therapy can reinforce a sense of personal control over our environment. And the dopamine lands differently still when online shopping. For me, there's a rush when I buy, when I receive, and when I return an item. So while I wasn't surprised to learn that 50% of all products are returned, 
I was astounded to learn that industry insiders predict one out of every eight products purchased online doesn't make its way back onto the online shelf, but rather ends up in landfill. This is one piece of data I gleaned from Gad Allen, a professor of operations, information and decisions at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. How much gets itself to a landfill? That's very hard to say. The belief is that around 25% of the things that are returned find themselves right in the, in the landfill, even though they were returned completely new. Gad works primarily with firms to figure out their return processes. He sees this as a wider issue than just pointing a finger at fast fashion. For example, last year, the growth of the sleep economy, these mattresses you can try out and return if you don't like them, saw 7 million mattresses thrown into landfill in the UK alone. E-commerce sales rose by 43% in the first year of COVID and show no signs of stopping, all for items that take over 200 years to break down and release greenhouse gases as they decompose. This is not what we expect companies to do with our returns. For one, we assume that because retailers are focused on making profits, they would surely find a way to make money from these returned items. But it turns out that even though the forward supply chain runs well, the one that starts at the manufacturer or supplier, it's the supply chain that sends our products back that can get pretty messy. This is a very inefficient supply chain. Why it's inefficient? Someone drops it at a store or at a nearby warehouse which means that someone needs to drive that back now to a warehouse, the inspection now. Someone needs to inspect it and say, is that valuable or not? Right? I mean, there are stories of people claiming to return something, but actually returning something else. Because sizes aren't consistent, especially for women's clothing, the incredibly generous return policies brands offer sees online shoppers bracket, meaning they will buy two to three of the same item in different sizes. In contrast... When shoppers go to an actual store, they can try things on. It's not surprising then that only 9% of all brick-and-mortar purchases are returned. Without efficient return supply chains, checking items and ensuring they're in good enough quality to get back onto the shelves becomes costly for companies. So much so that they'd rather throw the clothes away in some cases. I contacted global brands to ask about their online return policies, but none agreed to speak to me. Still... I wanted to know what the alternative was to this churning, wasteful supply chain. I decided to see if anyone here in New York, fashion capital of the world, was taking a different approach. After some research, I decided to visit Fabscrap. Um, cuttings, like you saw. A non-profit fabric recycling centre in Brooklyn. Fabric, extra fabric, dead stock fabric, lots of yarn, trims, like Founder Jess Schreiber shows me the ceiling-high pile of bags full of picked-up fabric. They receive £6,000 per week. We also will get things like a bunch of merch was made for a celebrity collab, but the collab fell through. Or a politician made a bunch of campaign t-shirts, <laughs> but then didn't get the um, nomination. Yeah, there are 750 brands that send stuff to Fab Scrap, including retailers J.Crew and Macy's. Fabric rolls that can still be used are resold by Fabscrap to the public at a discounted rate, while the items that I'm watching volunteers sort are the smaller scraps of fabric, cutting room waste, hordes of swatches supplied by design houses, material typically less than the equivalent of four floor tiles. These are recycled by a shredding process and then resold as carpet padding, insulation, mattress and pillow stuffing, even to the automotive industry. 
Everything that comes in is repurposed in some way. Even the spandex that can't be shredded is sent off to boxing gyms to stuff punching bags. I see now that textile waste is much further reaching than just post-consumer returns. A 2017 MacArthur report highlights that 12% of textiles are lost during design, and it's an industry average to waste 15 to 30% of fabric when making a garment. I instantly want to know how Fabscrap will expand to combat this waste and all those pesky returns. But herein lies another problem. By jumping to this assumption, I've just become an active player in finding solutions to maintain the levels of consumption we've all grown so used to. I think that's part of the trap of fast fashion. We don't actually need to speed this up. Let's review that process and let's start to reduce waste. A promising piece of legislation introduced in New York City in 1992 stipulated that if 10% or more of your commercial waste is textile material, businesses are required to recycle it. But even then, the fines of a few hundred dollars mean many brands don't comply. And let's face it, recycling is still just another flawed answer to the problem of overconsumption. As growing reports of the lack of processing or actually recycling items that are thrown in the recycling bin shows, recycling is more so used to ease customers' minds, rather than actually repurpose materials and keep them out of the environment. As brands target us more through effective advertising, it's become easier than ever to click and buy without thinking about the repercussions. I asked Gad from the Wharton School how we can all examine the true cost of our consumption. Like if you look at 50, 60, 70 years ago, people were uh, fixing clothing at home. So there was much more visibility into the effort of making clothing. You most likely knew the seamstress or you knew the person making you the clothing. So the notion of returns or the ease of just throwing it on and off, you understood the implication of that. Even if, if you didn't care about, let's say, the environment, you cared about, you understood the complexity of making that and you had respect to the fabric, to the clothing. For now, we can look to France, who in 2020 introduced an anti-waste law. Starting this year, it became illegal for any company to destroy unsold stock. Luxury brands Armani and Chanel have already stipulated the law will mean an increase in item cost and a decrease in production operations. The restriction consumers may need. For Deutsche Welle, I'm Nikki Thomas in New York. So we've heard a lot in recent years about the perils of fast fashion. Everything from overproduction to environmental pollution, human rights abuses, and as we heard in that last piece, free return policies enticing us to order more stuff online, which we often return, and those items going straight into a landfill. But fast fashion seems to be getting even faster. With the rise of social media apps like TikTok and Instagram, and the ability to easily purchase things directly from our phones, the latest trend is only a few clicks away. Celebrities and influencers may endorse this kind of fashion, but did you know that over 4% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the fashion industry alone? Of course, there are some exceptions to this business model. You might have heard recently that outdoor company Patagonia made headlines when their billionaire boss declared the Earth their only shareholder, giving away his company to fight climate change and environmental crises. Companies like this celebrate the hardiness and long-lasting nature of their products, but they are not the norm. 
Fast fashion trends remain popular, especially among young people, according to one expert. I'm Sucharita Kadali. I'm a retail analyst at Forrester. Focused on e-commerce, consumer behavior, and retail trends for the research and advisory company Forrester, Sucharita is constantly thinking about how things are changing in the ways we shop. Those have been particularly kicked into overdrive during the past few years of the COVID pandemic, but they can be traced even further back than that. The big changes really happened in the 90s and probably around kind of the turn of the century. That's really when you started getting ultra, ultra cheap manufacturing crop up around the world, whether it was H&M globally or Old Navy in the United States. And they just were game changers for consumers because you could get clothing really cheaply, kind of at unbelievable prices. So I think that that was the big change in the last like, couple of decades. Now, through COVID, it was just more of an amplification of that. I mean, the stores were closed during COVID. So where they went when they were purchasing clothes, they would go online and, you know, kind of they were spending a lot of time on social media. So there were a handful of companies that gained disproportionately those companies that were really using TikTok and Instagram and Snapchat and, you know, these social networks to promote themselves. And it was often a lot of startups that were just better at it. And it happened to be that a lot of those companies also were ultra fast fashion. A lot of these manufacturers were located overseas. So they were actually shipping stuff in individual packets across the ocean. So you you had all of these issues that we had before with fast fashion, and now you add transportation on top of that. And then there were some, some really bad, well, there were certain countries that were given really cheap mail rates. And China actually for many, many years was one of them. So that's why they could do stuff like this. Like they could take packages and ship them to the United States for less than what an American company would have to pay to ship its own package within the United States. So that was totally crazy and distorted all sorts of incentives. With this kind of explosion of online shopping, I mean, certainly since COVID, but as you say, going back a ways, one of these companies that doesn't have physical stores but has exploded in popularity is Shein. Can you tell us a little bit about Shein and similar companies and how they operate? Well, nobody really knows because these are private businesses. They don't talk to the media and they've been very, very guarded about what they share. So it's hard to tell what exactly they do. But what we know is that they are online only, extremely inexpensive products that they sell, and they are very aggressive with using social media to promote their business. Oh my God, I bought $2,000 worth of stuff. And that is my box, yeah. my Shein box. This is my jewelry holder. I bought this off Amazon just for this haul. Is Shine jewelry even good? You guys request Shein hauls like there's no tomorrow. And because I'm a people pleaser, now, these companies are adding hundreds, if not thousands, of new items to their websites every day. And it's led to social media influencers making posts like these, where they show off the sheer quantity of items they've ordered or their haul. 
At extremely low prices, we're talking between $8 and $30, this is pretty enticing to young people or anyone on a budget. The truth is that the apparel industry has worked every which way until Sunday to try to figure out how to get cheaper production. And there are companies like H&M and Old Navy that have essentially got it down to as cheap as you can possibly get it. I would say that they were probably as exploitative, as pollutive as, you know, as anybody. Yet Shein is even cheaper. So it really, really raises questions about, well, what are they doing that enables them to even disrupt the companies that were disruptors? Because a key part of fashion manufacturing is you have to get to scale. You have to buy like big bolts of fabric and use the heck out of every square inch in order to get your costs down. So how the heck are they buying far fewer bolts and manufacturing far less, there's something that's not adding up. So what are some ways that we can change this kind of hyper fast churning fashion model, especially when these companies are headquartered in other countries like China? I mean, is it even possible to change an industry like this? For sure. Absolutely. And some of it has to happen with government regulation. The easiest way to change behavior is to tax it and you know, have standards around what is considered quality. And then anything else either gets penalized or you tax people on the usage side. The issue is what consumer likes taxes. So these don't tend to be terribly popular initiatives, but you know it's the same arc that was followed with processed foods. And the Europeans were, you know, and the Canadians were ahead of the game in terms of understanding the risks of that type of production, outlawing it in some cases, certainly creating standards around it. So there's absolutely a government responsibility. The other is educating consumers. And it's got to happen in the way that organic food education has happened. It's got to be nonprofits and NGOs and academics and others that study this and share stories about it and bring it to life. And I think it will happen. It's happening right now. I feel like around this conversation, a lot of onus gets put on consumers who in this case are often younger, often women. And I'm curious, what role do you think social media plays in this whole supply chain, I suppose. Just you watch, social media will take down these businesses as fast as they help them rise. The bane and the blessing of this demographic is that as soon as they're educated or shamed you know, about their purchases, they very quickly behave differently. Like all it takes is somebody watching one negative video and their entire stream is going to be filled with all the other negative videos about it. So I I think it's a matter of time. Some of our listeners are maybe thinking, well, you know, I don't shop like that. But I'm curious for folks who have younger Gen Z people in their life, how should parents or others be thinking about the teens in their lives navigating this world of fast fashion? 
you know, I mean, I have two teenagers. There's only so much you can tell them, you know, (laughs) so I don't, I can tell them what I think they're not going to listen to me. You know, I'm better off donating to some nonprofit or NGO who's trying to create documentaries or is trying to improve the environment and hope that their efforts get through to my kids. You know, my efforts are better spent talking to our environmental science teacher and encouraging them to teach this subject and warn them about the risks of how they they choose to shop and what questions they need to be asking. So, you know, I think as as a parent, it's hard. You know, it seems like fashion just keeps getting faster and faster. What do you think the future holds for this fast fashion industry? I think that it is going to get taxed out of existence, ultimately, I think is is what's going to happen. A lot of the negatives in capitalism have happened because of negative externalities that companies have not been forced to bear. Can you give an example? Oh, gosh, when a factory pollutes a river, that's a negative externality to a community. But that factory isn't held accountable in many cases, not until like there's a cancer cluster and, you know, a lawsuit happens. So that's a perfect example of a negative externality. But there are so many. What's going to happen to fast fashion is that these negative externalities, like people are finally recognizing this. I'm curious also from the consumer standpoint in terms of consuming less, that doesn't seem like something that's going to necessarily be happening anytime soon. You know, I mean, I I think it's going to, it depends. I mean, I, you know, they're already like buy nothing groups on Facebook that are all about having people borrow like their neighbor's stuff. I think that the reuse has to happen at the local level to be the most carbon negative and probably the greenest organizations, honestly, are probably like Goodwill or Salvation Army, you know, where people just give their stuff away locally and they figure out how to resell a lot of that merchandise. And Goodwill, I think it's actually been very successful and it's growing and, you know, it's hugely popular and they've got some great business metrics. So I wouldn't sell it short. You know, I do think that reuse absolutely increases when the costs are high. Think of Mm. homes and think of cars, you know? I mean, if you make things expensive, people buy the used stuff. That was retail analyst Sucharita Kadali. I'm Sam Baker, and you're listening to Living Planet. For more on this topic, do check out our YouTube channel, DW Planet A. I recommend the video, if you think fast fashion is bad, check out Shein. From high-speed fashion, let's shift now to a slower, more traditional way of making clothes. In the northern part of India, amongst towering mountains of the Himalayan and Karakoram range, lies the region of Ladakh. These mountains were once part of the Silk Road, through which the world's finest silk and wool were traded, creating a range of textiles and arts along the way. But today, the region struggles to even sustain its own production of wool, amid climate change and economic struggles. Lacking health and education facilities have caused many to move hundreds of kilometers away to the only city in the region. Furkan Latif Khan brings us this report. 
this piece what you find here is men's rope we call it dugris and this is roughly you know like uh, beginning 18th century and it has got its own meaning i mean if you really look from bottom to you know like top you find whole you know cosmic uh, story to it like bottom it says um, ocean waves are there as a motif and then on the center there's a mound mirror a sacred mound mirror that's jigmet norbo a fashion designer in his 40s who recently established a textile museum in his hometown leh norbu aims to conserve ladakh's rich textile history and revive many of its designs we thought you know okay let it be a place where one can sit study a resource center proper you know so one fourth of our inventory is on display weaving has been an integral part of ladakh's culture for centuries especially the nomadic tribes of the region at one time different tribes had their own trademarked patterns through which their work and objects were identified and a lot of these practices are struggling to survive these nomadic tribes also called changpas have been rearing pashmina goats for centuries they roam around in the changtang area which is a part of the high altitude tibetan plateau in the western and northern tibet extending into the southern edges of xinjiang as well as the southeastern ladakh the undercoats of these pashmina goats are used to make some of the finest wool Divided between India and China, the plateau is one of the coldest inhabited regions of the world. For the few tribal families that continue to live on the Tibetan plateau, a new set of problems are now coming up. Sering Palmo is a 55-year-old shepherdess who has been herding her goats for four decades. Palmo shows me medicines that she has been getting from the animal husbandry. Her livestock are increasingly falling sick as seasons change. In recent years, she has had to learn how to administer injections so she can treat her livestock. Herding livestock is changing, she says. We used to get grass and weeds for our goats very close from here. Now because of the changing climate there is less water and grass isn't growing as much. It doesn't rain like it used to. Palmo spends most of the year in the freezing remote valleys of the plateau in search of pasture lands for her goats. But despite dedicating their lives to rearing the goats, the locals do not seem to be receiving the benefit of producing the world's finest wool. Most of the value lies higher up in the supply chain, that is by making finished product within Ladakh. That's Tanzan Minglak, a 34-year-old co-founder of a Pashmina products brand called Lena Ladakh. Lena is a local word for Pashmina. Minglak and her partner Sonam Angmo started their brand in 2016. Young entrepreneurs in Ladakh are being supported by the local government to establish Ladakh's pashmina as a flagship product. Uh we started our company with the help of first generation entrepreneurship loan from, from the government. The district industries and commerce centers so they have also you know started the initiative of providing the getting the GI tag. A GI tag stands for geographic indication tag. It is something like a certificate of authenticity often given to products in India that are produced in a certain region. So they are very much interested showing lots of interest and encouraging us to um you know do as much as we can you know regarding pashmina. Ladakh's pashmina fiber measures 12 microns in thickness. Pashmina found in other parts of the world are around 16 microns. The finer the wool the more soft and expensive it is. 
While a lot of interest is being shown by the government to support the final product, Angmo feels that not enough is being done for the people working on rearing the goats. So this urban migrations problem is making these young nomads, you know, lose kind of lose their identity. It's difficult for them to, you know, now reconnect with their roots. So, and their culture is like I I really like to call them as indigenous weavers of Ladakh. The younger generation of Changpas find it more lucrative to work in the tourism industry or as porters for India's army. Palmo shares that many of her counterparts often talk about leaving pastoral life altogether in the coming years. A lot of people here say that herding pashmina goats is going to be over in two to three years. I will not stop doing this as long as I can. According to Namgyal, when Changpas change their profession, it often makes them lose the lives they once had, along with their heritage and for many even their identity. And uh, once they, you know, uh, choose to, you know, move from Changtang to Lei, so they face a lot of challenge. So that is why mostly what they find is like they usually do wage labor or porter. Even the people living around here, other people look down, like you know. You know, slowly they lose their self-dignity. You know, in Changtang they are the kings, they are the everything. You know, so in in Lei they are like the low strata, like any social strata. For DW, I am Furkan Latif Khan from Lei Ladakh. Thanks this week to Wisam Darman, Jan Winkelmann, and Vibka Tichtmeyer in the studio, and to Elliot Douglas for help with production. I'm Sam Baker. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. Mm-hmm.